verse of chapter 6. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But Moses said to the Lord, since I speak with faltering lips, why should Pharaoh listen to me? Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to tell the Israelites to let the Israelites go out of the country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. The Lord said to Moses and to Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh and it will become a snake. Then Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now, you have not listened. And this is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, and the river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. And Moses said to Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, the canals, over the ponds, and all the reservoirs, and they will turn to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in the wooden buckets and stone jars. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised his staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed into blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. The Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts. Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not, even, did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water because they could not drink the water of the river. Now, that was the first plague. There was then uh, the plague um, of frogs, followed by a plague of gnats, of flies. Um, there was a curse, a plague on the livestock, and a plague of boils on people. 
and a plague of hail. And that was followed by a plague of locusts. And every time it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let his people go. And then um, in, uh, chapter, um, in chapter 10, so if, um, if you could find uh, chapter 10, um, I'm going to read the ninth plague. Uh, it's in verse 21 plague of darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards the, the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you, only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshipping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Well, he does, and he doesn't die. Uh, and I, I just encourage you actually um, uh, possibly today or tomorrow just to read through uh, that, that, that passage in full um, seeing uh, how uh, Moses and Pharaoh and how Pharaoh is, you know, rebels against God while in sin so I'm not going to dangerous, I might take some of John's sermon there um, we're going to stand again and sing before John ministers this might kick in at some... Oh, it has. Good. Right. Let's get my thing. I've got my little... Keep your Bibles open at Exodus um, chapter 6 and 7. That's where we'll be spending most of our time this morning. But um, as John says, we're going to look at the plagues together. Most of them. All but one, which we'll save for next week. Let's pray, shall we, as we come to God's word. Father, thank you for the wonderful reminder that we've had this morning that we are the church. We're a small local expression of a worldwide family that you are calling to yourself that you are creating for yourself, that you are drawing together in unity with Christ as our head. As we come now to your word, Lord Jesus, we ask that you'd rule over us, you'd be our head, you'd speak your life-giving word into our lives, and we would be submissive to it. Help us to obey it. Help us to respond with repentance and faith and be truly your body together. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what we're hitting on this morning is, is one of the um, most important kind of central messages, really, in the Bible. And it's coming front and center for us today. And to put it as delicately as I possibly can, without wanting to offend anyone, although I have been away for a couple of weeks, so I've got a lot of offense to catch up on. It is simply this. God is real. Resistance is futile. And we exist to worship him. God is real. Resistance is futile. And we exist to worship him. Now, some of us this morning might be tempted to say, well, John, you have your beliefs. You can believe in fairy tales as much as you like, but don't impose them on me. To which the Bible says, God is real. doesn't matter what you call him doesn't matter how you refer to him or how dismissive you may be. In fact, it really doesn't matter what you think if he's real. And you and I might say, well, I like to believe at times in the idea of God. But I don't really want to live my life on his terms. I don't want to live with him having a claim over me. To which the Bible says, God is not as an idea. God is not a philosophical position. He is God. And as such, He is your God. We live in an age of choice, don't we? We get to choose everything. Or at least we have the illusion of choice at times. We think we're choosing. But we do, don't we? We get to choose the very best mobile phone deal for us. We go to the supermarket and we are bombarded with choice. I remember watching my mum do the, the weekly shop and kind of marveling at her ability to, to know within a millisecond, what the very most economical choice would be in relation to every single aisle in the supermarket. Maybe you're like that. But I remember then becoming a student and having to try and shop for myself and being completely overwhelmed by the sheer number of varieties of bacon in the supermarket and almost having a kind of nervous breakdown when I arrived at the frozen peas section. But because of that choice, we think we can choose whether or not there is a God. But there is no choice in relation to God. This is not about what we might believe is best for us or what we think we should prefer in life. Today, what we're going to see is that God is real. 
that resistance is futile and that we exist to worship him. So we're in the middle of the Exodus story. Israel is being being saved from slavery in Egypt and entirely by the sovereign grace of the true and living God. But if you remember last week, Pharaoh's response in chapter 5, verse 2, is very striking. So in chapter 5, verse 1, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, verse 2, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Let Israel go. I don't know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that he should have some kind of voice in my life? Who is the Lord that I should possibly waste my time on him? Well, in a sense, the plagues are the answer to that question. The plagues, as one commentator puts it, are the signs of sovereignty. And the key thing for us this morning is that the Lord is the one true God. We see that really clearly in the very first sign. So even before the plagues begin, there is a sign, isn't there, in chapter 7, verse 8. Let's read it again. Chapter 7, verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle... Then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. And Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So here are um, Moses and Aaron doing in the power of God this miraculous sign, and the magicians accomplish basically the same thing. They get to the same result through their own secret arts, proving, surely, that actually they can choose. You've got your God, we've got ours. We can all do amazing things, guys. Chill out. We're not going to listen to you, except Aaron's staff swallows up all the other staff. It's worth pausing just at that moment because I think there are plenty of ways that we can replicate, we can duplicate the effects, the good effects, if you like, of God in our lives. If you want to sort your life out, 
you can go and find people who will help you to do that. If you want to be valued, you can find a friend who will value you deeply. If you want to be successful, you can work hard, get a promotion, and be successful. A few years ago, um, a group of, 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 of uh, agnostics and, and atheists launched something called the Sunday Assembly. And it, in a sense, it was a fantastic idea. It still exists to, to some, in, some, in some places. It was a fantastic idea for, for people who are looking for community, but not looking for God. This is a great way to gather together. They would gather and basically kind of do church, except they'd sing songs like, you know, um, all you need is love or whatever instead. And so the whole point was that they didn't really want God in their lives, but they, they wanted, in a sense, the effects of God. They wanted community. Well, there are all kinds of ways that we can do that. And in a sense, the message this morning is don't believe in God because he works. Don't believe in God because he helps you. Don't believe in God because he feels right. Believe in him because he's real. But because of that, the flip side is also true. Because he is real, he is the greatest fulfillment of everything that we long for, everything that we're made for, everything that we endlessly search for in our lives. Which is kind of what he's saying through the plagues. Let's look at the first plague together. I've lost it somewhere in here. There we go. The plague of blood. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let his people go. Let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the river. Confront him on the banks of the Nile. Take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. And say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews has sent me to say to you, let my people go so that they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. The staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile. It will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die. The river will stink. The Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, take your staff, stretch over the, your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, the canals, over the ponds, all the reservoirs, and they will be turned to blood. Blood will be everywhere in Egypt, even in vessels of wood and stone. I don't know about you, but as I kind of read the plagues, the obvious question is, why, why are these the plagues? 
Why are these the signs? Why are these the things that God is doing? Why start with the Nile filling with blood? Well, actually, as you kind of drill into a little bit, a little bit it seems that most of the plagues are, are directly defeating some kind of Egyptian god. So, the Egyptians had a god called Heket, who had the head of a frog. They had Apis, the bull god. They had Nut, the sky god. They had Ray, the sun god. And the Egyptian god of the Nile was Happy. There he is. And you can kind of see that what Happy is all about, to some degree, is kind of overseeing uh, the, the fruitfulness, the fertility of the land. And so Happy was the Nile god. And they worshipped Happy. They respected Happy. They revered Happy, actually, because the Nile gave them all of their fertility all of their prosperity, all of their happiness, all of their life. The whole reason Egypt could prosper as a society was precisely because of the river that ran through it and does today. You can see it's a completely parched land, except for this extraordinary vein of green that runs through it because of the Nile. So you might say that the Nile made the Egyptian world go round. Happy made the world go round. Well, I wonder what our equivalent is today. What makes our world go round, do you think? What do we worship so often in our lives because we think it will give us Fulfillment, prosperity, happiness, and life. But the true and living God reduces the Nile to effectively a festering swamp filled, no doubt, with the coronavirus. And I was kind of explaining this to my son because he ke- he was sort of uh, he came into my study and I was working on my sermon and and I had this picture up on, on my um, on Google and I was and, and he said oh you know we we did the Egyptian gods I said well this is this is the Egyptian god happy and I was just explaining the whole thing to him he said at the end of it he said oh you mean um, happy won't make you happy I said yes. He said, put that in your sermon. So there we are, I have. (laughs) But that's it, you see, isn't it? That actually all of these false gods that we worship, whatever they mean, wherever we turn, we think, well, that's what makes the world go round. They cannot accomplish what we think they will. So what are your gods? Money? Money makes the world go round. Sex, power, 
comfort, choice, freedom. I suspect most of us here have not lived in a context where we literally worship little icons or idols. But some of us may have grown up in that kind of environment. But we still have gods. They are the things that we hope in, the things that we stake our life on, the things that govern our decisions, that rule our lives. A good question to ask is, where do you turn when you feel hopeless? Where do you turn? Where's your go-to place? Functionally, that may well be your God. But these gods can never keep the promises that they make. They can never deliver our expectations of them. And in the end, in the end, everything that we long for, everything that we're made for, the endless quest of our lives, only ever reaches fulfillment in the true and living God. Throughout the plagues, the reason for the plagues is consistently told. So we might think, what, what is he doing here? Why is he doing this? He tells us many, many times why he is doing this. Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 7, verse 17. By this you will know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 10. So that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Chapter 9, verse 14. So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Chapter 10, verse 2. That you may know that I am the Lord. The Lord is the one true God. It's a reality check. Certainly a reality check for Pharaoh. But it is for the Israelites too. I've just come back, as many of you know, from a brief trip to, the, to America in order to visit churches, to, to help a partnership between churches in the States that really want to fund a mission across the world and then the church planting that we're trying to do in Birmingham. And I visited a number of different churches, was there for nine days, but every single, everywhere I went, I faced southern hospitality, which basically meant I had to eat an awful lot of food. And it was amazing, this food. It really was the most delicious kind of, it's basically sugar and fat put together 
in the most creative ways. Um, and so, like, I just made a decision very early on that I would not think about my waistline. Everything, I would just be in denial for the whole trip. And I was completely in denial for the whole trip. Until when I arrived home, this is true, my belt broke. <laughs> and I said to Sarah, I said, my belt has just broken. I think it was loose anyway. She just sort of <laughs> looked at me. And I, and I looked at the scales in our bathroom. And I thought, it's time for a reality check. And the point is this, like actually just ignoring it, being in denial about it, doesn't change reality, does it? And the plagues are the reality check for Pharaoh. He can stick his fingers in his ears and pretend it's not happening, but it doesn't change reality. He can ignore Moses as much as he wants. He can offer his own threats. He can kind of create the illusion that he's just as powerful or whatever. It does not change reality. So the Lord is the one true God. Do not resist him. You see... This is all about Pharaoh, this section. Pharaoh is like the, the kind of, you just can't believe it. You're sort of watching this car crash happen in slow motion, really. As he's in complete denial and resistance to the true and living God. One of the questions to ask as you read through the, the plagues, and I do encourage you to do that just to slow down and to maybe think about some of the points from this sermon and read the whole thing for yourself. But one of the questions to ask is, what is going on with Pharaoh's heart? Actually, in chapter 6, verse 3, God says, he will harden Pharaoh's heart. God will do it. But as you read the, the plagues, initially at least, I mean, it's a little bit awkward, the Hebrew, but it's different words that are being used. But initially, it seems it's Pharaoh himself who is hardening his heart. Pharaoh hardens his own heart to God. And that seems to then be interspersed with a kind of passive sense of his heart being hardened. But the last three of the plagues, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Just look with me at chapter 10, verse But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. 
the day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. At this point, we've had ten signs. We've had nine plagues, and then the sign of the snake at the beginning. There is one more to come. There has been an extraordinarily gracious window of opportunity for Pharaoh. And yet eventually, God gives him over to his own hard-heartedness. Now, I think we have lots of questions about God's dealing with Pharaoh in this section. But in a sense, what we need to understand is who we are in relation to God. We ask, how could a loving God send people to hell? But the Bible says if we consistently live in resistance to him, with all of the window of opportunity and grace that we have, he will eventually give us what we ask for. And an eternity in hard-hearted, self-destructive rebellion against God, cut off from his presence, under his curse, is hell. And so there's a sense in which resistance to the true and living God really is futile. It is quite literally futility. Hopelessness. Back in chapter 7, verse 1, Moses is to go to Pharaoh, and the Lord says to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. There's a sense in which Moses is the presence of God in Pharaoh's life at that point. And by the end of the plagues, Moses says, well, just as you wish, just as you ask, I will not appear before you again. Certainly not with a window of grace. I guess at that point, our temptation is to say, well, fine. I'd be happy. I'd be happy for God to let me go and for me just to get on with things my way, my life. But because God is the one true God, because he's the creator of the world and the creator of us, and because we live and breathe and exist because of his breath in us and in the world that he is sustaining and holding together, if he withdraws his favor, creation 
unravels. And again, the, the, the plagues are basically communicating precisely that. So, it's from the water that the frogs come. It's from the ground that the gnats are drawn. It's from the air that all the flies come. And in the end, even light and life itself are extinguished. And so we say, well, at least God isn't like that now. I mean, this is the Old Testament God, and he, we all know he was a kind of nasty piece of work. I'm glad we don't have anything as bad as the plagues. Well, listen to these words from Jesus. This is Jesus speaking about his return. And this is what he has to say. He says, when he returns and comes to judge the whole world, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Our temptation is to say, well, look, the Old Testament was kind of as bad as it gets, and and thank goodness we're living in the New Testament. The reality check is that actually the Old Testament plagues are a picture for us of a far worse futility that there is to come. And so we live in the window of opportunity. God is gracious to us. Do not resist him. Instead, worship him. I'm glad this sermon has a third point to it. See, God is... God is so loving to us. Even in the midst of these plagues, there are all kinds of little glimpses of hope. Even amid the futility of Pharaoh's kind of pig, pig-headed, hard-hearted resistance, there are little signs of hope. We'll just look at one of them together. It's there in chapter 10, verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light 
from the places where they live. It's hard to visualize, isn't it, what's going on. But there's this extraordinarily kind of oppressive darkness that can be felt. And, and amid it, there's the, this kind of beautiful shaft of light. This little ray of light that is falling onto the people of God. I was trying to sort of imagine it for myself. And um, we went to Robin Hood's Bay in the half term up, up near Scarborough, which is where we, my parents live. And as is our custom, we went for fish and chips in Robin Hood's Bay, um, and which may have also contributed to the belt breaking. But uh, we were with some friends, and they said, oh, look, let's, let's eat them outside. Let's eat them looking out over the sea. And it was freezing cold. And it was so kind of dark and like gloomy and, and you know, the, the mist was rolling in and, and there was a real kind of strong breeze, head-on wind, and it was cold. And we ate our fish and chips as quickly as we possibly could. But as we kind of walked through the town, there were just one or two little spots which were completely sheltered and where the sun just broke through. And maybe you've had that experience on a walk or you've been out in the cold and you've just found yourself in a little nook, a little calm place. And the sun has shone through. And honestly, there was one moment where I just could stand there and, and close my eyes. I could have stood there all day just soaking in the warmth and the light on my face. And even in the midst of the darkest darkness, <laughs> there's this tiny glimpse of God's goodness, of his grace. What have the Israelites done to deserve this, other than simply being chosen as his people, out of God's own mercy? This little glimpse of goodness and warmth and his loving care. And we're going to see this so much more clearly in the forthcoming weeks as we allow Exodus to unfold before us. But there's a hint even here that God loves to save his people. He delights to save his people. And he does it through this complete nobody, Moses. And of course, as we arrive at the New Testament, the thing that does change is the clarity with which we see the character of God. See, if we look at Jesus, as God is willing to even step into the darkness, we see this man of light and life and goodness who, as far as the world is concerned, is a complete nobody and yet is willing to 
bear in his own body the full force of the judgment of God through his death on the cross. As Jesus dies on the cross, effectively he is unraveled. He is unraveled so that we don't need to be unraveled. That we might be saved and bask in his loving light. If you were to read on in Matthew's Gospel, you'd see that as Jesus dies, there's an earthquake. <laughs> the whole of creation shakes. And dead people are raised to life from the graves. And the centurion watching all of this take place, watching Jesus die, says, surely this man is the Son of God, or was the Son of God. I think he says, this is the Son of God. See, in that place of death and in that place of darkness, Jesus shines his light and brings forth life for worship. That is the goal. We'll see it so clearly in Exodus. That is the reason he's taking his people, he's setting them free to live lives in truly free worship to him. Moses is a nobody, but he submits to God. He obeys him. He becomes part of this unstoppable story that moves through judgment to salvation to life-giving worship. And I don't know what you need to hear this morning. In a sense, we have the warning of Pharaoh, but we also have the extraordinary encouragement to the people of God, do we not? I don't know what you need to hear this morning, but, but hear this. The true and living God is bigger than you think he is. He's inescapable. He's unstoppable. He's unavoidable. <laughs> and I think when we're feeling particularly under the cosh, weak, marginalized, uh, I don't know, attacked, whatever it might be, however we're feeling in that place, it's very tempting to think, is there some kind of competition going on between gods here? Is there some kind of competition? Have I basically backed the wrong side here? Is that what's gone on here? But he's the true and living God. He's unstoppable. He has the victory. Whilst I was in the States, I was listening one evening to, to a guy who had planted 10 churches by the grace of God on farms in South Africa. 
an amazing man with an amazing vision. And God had just raised him up from nowhere to do this. He was the most kind of unassuming guy. I'd sat and eaten with him earlier and just thought, oh, yeah, nice guy. And then he got up to give his presentation. I thought, wow, what a man of God. I turned to the missions pastor of this church that we were with. And I said to him, you've got the best job in the world. Because you get to hear and see all these amazing ways that God is quietly raising up the most unassuming, ordinary people to do the most remarkable things that you will never hear about on the BBC News. You'll never read about on the internet. But he's just doing it. You get, to see, you get a front row seat for all of that. He said, I know, it's absolutely amazing. I said, you get to see the victory of God in all these most unlikely ways. And then as I was preparing for this morning, I thought, you know, we all get to see that. We all get to see that. And supremely, it's as we look to the cross, isn't it? That we see God in all of his glory and all of his goodness accomplishing his unstoppable, unshakable victory. Friends, God is real. He's victorious. He's altogether lovely. Let us worship him.